Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm Bill Curley and Holly Hadley. And um, again, we just keep bringing up the fact that if you have a need or concern that needs to be communicated to the church for pastoral care or an awareness of somebody else who has such a need, would you please let us know? You can call the church. You can contact us through either the St. Paul's website or Ordinary Life's website, and we will respond to that. And I have a, a, a bribe to offer. Me? No. Oh. Uh, to anybody who will sign up for our Instagram account. Yeah. What's, what's the prize? They get to see the video White Jesus, okay. which is on there. Yeah. So our Instagram is Ordinary Life HTX. Okay. Yeah. I've only posted one thing. I know. I was so was, impressed that it was that a was video. with my daughter's help. Thank you, Sabrina. <laughs> so it worked. White Jesus video is really very good. Mm -hmm. But the reason that we're letting you know about this is that it is a way also to uh, populate the podcast that we're doing. Yeah. And I got on the Squarespace website today, and we've done more of those than I thought. Six We're about now. five. Six now. Six now. Mm -hmm. So you can access the podcast via our website. I always link it to Instagram and Facebook um, and Twitter, actually. So however you choose to use social media, you can link to the podcast, to the blog, and to these Sunday talks as well um, in all of those capacities. And you can get the podcast through Apple Podcasts mm -hmm. or wherever you get, get your podcast mm -hmm. from. No, it's been fun so far. It'd be cool yeah. to do. So uh, follow us. Yeah. Um, I hope your spiritual practice is sustaining you during this time. And as usual, I want to thank William Budge and Olivia Watson and John Watson and Tim Leatherwood for making sure that this works. And um, if you are prone to donate to Ordinary Life, we have an offering plate right here that we'll pass around in just a minute. And when it comes by, be generous. How can they do this? How can we do this? We can do this by going to ordinarylife.org um, and there's a donate button and you will be guided through the steps on how to make a donation via the St. Paul's website where you just have to put ordinary life in the memo. Richard Wingfield also created a small video so if you need extra help it's there to guide you through it. So thanks very much. And uh, everybody's a pajama person, a mimosa person. Yeah, except us, we get dressed on A Sundays. wine and cheese person. Yeah. And I found out after I got here that I wore the wrong thing and that I could disappear. <laughs> Bill might disappear into the background, but this is actually just him practicing a magic trick. My disappearing metamorphosis trick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome in this time. I'm glad that we are able to do this in the way that we do. You know, my hope in uh, teaching all of these classes is that we experience freedom, that we experience liberation. Um, the whole path of spiritual growth is to be involved in an ongoing process of becoming a center of freedom and love. And um, we are using during this time the teachings of Buddha and Jesus to guide us through this pandemic. Now, if you think that we might be overbalancing this in the Buddha direction, when we are done with the Eightfold Path, we're going to tilt back in the Jesus direction and do the same thing that Buddha did uh, in talking about both the Beatitudes and what I call the transforming initiatives that Jesus offered in, in his teachings. You'll find that they are remarkably similar in uh, what, what they offer. Uh, these two spiritual teachers who were 500 years apart About, yeah. um, did, did a lot. I thought of this metaphor this week that when you were little, um, somebody at some point along the way of your development stood behind you and held your two arms up and helped you learn to walk. And it wasn't something that you learned to do overnight. You didn't run a marathon the day after you learned to take your first steps. You walked a lot like a drunken sailor. You fell down a lot. And usually when you fell on your butt, you 
laughed about it or giggled. My kids did. Yeah, yeah. And then you roll over and you figure out how to stand up and do it all again, holding on to a coffee table or whatever. That was spiritual practice in walking, yeah. in learning to walk. It was not something you did immediately or, or overnight. So in, in the spiritual world, how we learn to cultivate the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility is something that we do by having this daily practice that I keep harping on and um, having some way to make sure that we are growing in these values. And one of the ways that we are holding up right now for all of us to consider is what Buddha called the Eightfold Path. The, the fourth of the noble truths of Buddhism um, can, are made up of what he called the Eightfold Path. The first two steps of the Eightfold Path are what we call wisdom teachings. It's the right uh, attitude and right thought. Right understanding. And right understanding. Mm -hmm. and, and we've spent a week on each of those. We could have spent a <laughs> lot longer. Spend. The yeah. next four uh, teachings are what we call morality teachings, and we're going to be dealing with that today and the next three Sundays. Today will be about right speech. And then the last two on the Eightfold Path are what we call mental discipline teachings, right concentration and, and right effort. I want to stress again that this is not a linear path. This is more like a circle. Holly has described it as a staircase, a spiral staircase that goes up and down at the same time. You can join the circle at any time. And all of these principles relate to every other one that we, we have talked about. So we'll get into the, um, the teachings of Jesus after we're, we're done with these. And I'll try to point out the similarities. Both Jesus and Buddha uh, departed from an emphasis on getting things right in terms of commandments. Buddha never issued a commandment. Jesus never really issued but one, and that was that you're to love one another if you're gonna be my disciple. But what both of them emphasized was the importance of wisdom and skill in, in living life. Think of the parable that Jesus offered um, to summarize his teachings, he said, there were two men who built a house, one on a foundation of solid rock and one on a foundation of sand. And the one who built on the rock, of course, is the one who demonstrated wisdom because he built wisely, and the one who built on sand uh, did not do that. But both Jesus and Buddha, instead of saying you have to do something, they focus not what is on good or bad, but what is on wise and useful. And I think, I don't know the mind of Buddha at this point, but I think that right speech is separated into a category all of its own because not killing and, and not stealing and not using intoxicants, um, they're all grouped into one when we get to there next week. Mm -hmm. Yes. But right speech is in a category of its own because it is so powerful. There's also a direct linkage between right speech and right thinking. You know, this idea that thoughts become things, right? So um, when we speak from the, imp from the impulsivity of a thought before pausing, you know, so that there's a, there's, it's almost like this is the bridge between the wisdom teachings and the morality teachings. The thought develops into word. That's right. And the word develops into habit. Yeah. Habit yeah. develops into character. So watch the thought. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, the other thing to maybe say about spending a week on each of these teachings, as Bill said, we could go so much deeper. And I think the encouragement here is to give you, like, a taste so that, you might be encouraged to go a little bit deeper into what are these wisdom teachings, what are these morality teachings, and, and do they apply to the spiritual path that you are on? Uh, the Buddha says, check them out and check them out deeply. And if they don't work for you, that's fine. But you won't know that unless you go deep into that sort of spiral, widening spiral staircase and up and down spiral staircase. So these are deep and wide, I would say.
and yeah. fun. And yeah, they are. They are actually. They can be really fun. So, so. Um, I could spend the rest of this time today telling stories of particularly clergy, mm -hmm. things that have happened in churches, yeah. where the wrong word has been said at the wrong time. <laughs> Freudian slips. <laughs> Freudian slips, as well as uh, the disaster of all disasters, sticking a microphone in front of some child's play face and asking them to make a comment on the sermon for the day. Oh, wow. It, uh, it really, I could do that. That's so funny. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm checking myself right now because I've got a dozen stories that I could tell. <laughs> but there have been people who have collected slips of the typewriter, you might say. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Um, I'll give you some that uh -huh. I've collected over a period of time. These appeared in church bulletins. The Boy Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. <laughs> <laughs> ladies' Bible study will be held Thursday morning at 10. All ladies are invited to lunch in the fellowship hall after the BS is done. <laughs> Low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> the pastor will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing Break Forth Into Joy. <laughs> Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. <laughs> Thursday night potluck supper. Prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> oh, goodness. A few more. The roast bud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David, the sin of Fred and Mary Adams. <laughs> Just one little letter makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yep. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, my loud laugh is going <laughs> to... Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a rather touching, serious story to share. Is now the time, or it's, we're here, we're all giggling about your sayings. But um, uh, on a serious-ish note, um, you know, stories, words, etc., are used to help us understand what is right speech. What is how? How shall we? How shall we love? Or how shall we act in the world? So actually, Bill shared this story not too long ago, but I think it's worth resharing at this time. It's a story about a samurai and a small monk. So a big tough samurai once went to see a little tiny monk. Monk, he says, in a voice accustomed to instant obedience. Teach me about heaven and hell. The monk looked up at the mighty warrior and replied with utter, utter disdain, teach you about heaven and hell? I couldn't teach you about anything. You're dumb, you're dirty, you're a disgrace, you're an embarrassment to the samurai class. Get out of my sight, I can't stand you. So the samurai gets furious. He shakes, he's red in the face, he's speechless with rage. He pulls out his sword and he raises it above the monk's head, ready to slay the monk. And the, the monk then says, looking straight into the samurai's eyes, that's hell. The samurai freezes, realizing the compassion of the monk who has risked or willing to risk his life to teach him this teaching. He put down his sword and immediately sort of a peace overcomes him, a calm, and he's filled with gratitude. The monk said softly, and that's heaven. That's a great story. It's a great story. And I think how this applies right now to right speech is that how we relate to each other how we speak with one another or show one another compassion or not can bring about liberation or heaven, or it can bring about contraction or hell. If we operate from the small self, we're operating in a contracted space. 
So how do we learn to be with one another in a way that expresses presence rather than reactivity? The Buddha calls this right speech. It's a cluster of teachings, as Bill said, on the path that guides us in how to be in the world and how to show up. It's essentially um, a conveyance of a respect for life. So right speech is intertwined with right thinking in two ways in particular. It requires us to pause and recognize our habit thinking, which last week um, when I was rereading Thich Nhat Hanh, his pause question is, hello, habit energy. Just noticing when we're operating from a space of judgment, of criticism, of anxiety, that may guide our actions or speech. And then right speech is also coming from the mind of love, which is called bodhicitta. It's an embodied speech, which means we're present to the sensations and the places in our bodies that are activated when something is said to us or when we are going to react or respond to something. So noticing, for example, the flutter in the stomach when someone addresses you with, um, uh, with judgment, right? Or, or the, the heat in the face when you feel embarrassed of something you've done. It's, 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 it's recognizing in the body where responses sit. Wrong speech is a total disconnect from the body. So when we react as opposed to notice and respond, we are disconnected from the body. We're, out, we're having an outer body experience, I would say. Um, it's because it's kind of what allows us to flip off another driver in a moment of rage and say, you know, that a-hole. It's, it's without ever noticing that our hands are shaking. You know, so if we can sort of pause and go, why am I, my hands are shaking, why am I feeling rage? Then we can sort of get into the body before we speak what is not helpful. So the two elements of right speech, or two of the elements of right speech, I should say, are speak what is true and speak what is helpful. Do not speak what is untrue, which includes little white lies, which I bet 100% of us have told a white lie. Never. <laughs> There's a good example. <laughs> um, do not speak slander, not even in the kitchen when you're talking about your least favorite politician. Well, you know, I, I, um, after we had prepared this yeah. and talked about it, and people don't know what goes on behind the scenes about this, which is probably a good thing. They don't need to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> they don't need to know everything. But after we had done this, I got to thinking back about how we spent time with the Jim Wallace material and the Karen Armstrong material, and both of them stressed the importance of truth-telling. Yes. And Jim Wallace, of course came out with his declaration, which was signed by a lot of people in light of the 2016 presidential right. election. And how often have I heard people say about the conduct of our current administration, well, all politicians lie. Mm -hmm. You can't expect a politician to tell right. the truth. And when I was at, at Harvard, I had a class with Richard Niebuhr and he explained, indeed he wrote a book about this, about how it is that people in public life, including clergy, mm -hmm. teachers mm -hmm. of all kinds, can shade what they say in light of the constituency to which they are speaking. Sure. We all do that. We slant our speech in order to gain favor for ourselves, which is, um, we'll talk about, talk about this in just a second, but an evolutionary tool, right? And, and so. the reason that when you go to do a 10-day or longer meditation retreat that it's silent is for this very reason. Mm -hmm. It's just when we open our mouths, it's so easy to put a spin on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Because we're, again, it, you know, noticing what happen, what's happening in our body before we speak, noticing what's happening in our mind, what the monkey mind is telling us before we speak. Hello, habit energy. It's just that little pause. And one, we don't do that because it's yeah. not uh, efficient, mm -hmm. and we prize efficiency mm -hmm. in this culture, mm -hmm. and we don't do that because we don't have a daily spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. I think I said this a little bit ago, too, where we're a bit um, focused on the I, right? Our I development, our self-development, rather mm -hmm. than on the collective. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the other aspect of right speech is do not speak harshly from direct insult to passive aggressive behavior. So 
I, we'll get into this a little bit later, but a, an action can also speak volumes, oh, yeah. right? Or a lack of action can speak volumes. We use deceptive speech in so many circumstances and so much so that we're hardly aware of it. And the temptation, once you hear a few of these, might be to say, oh, come on, that's harmless. But we, ha we, we say them, oh, that looks great on you, right? <laughs> Does this make my butt look big? No, babe, no. <laughs> I'll be there in a minute when really you're 20 minutes away. Um, I'm fine. I'm just fine. How many times when you say, how are you? Do you say, fine, right? <laughs> Not right speech. Um, you haven't changed in 25 years. He didn't mean it that way. Followed by, can't you just take a joke? So deception is so common in part because it's an evolutionary tool. See if you can see the um, animals in these. So uh, camouflage is protective. We have the owl in the tree that is blending right in with the owl. The lizard climbing up the trunk that blends right in with the trunk. Keep going. In this one, can you find the frogs? Well, when I first saw it, I, I see um, three or two? I see three. Two? Three. Three? Mm -hmm. Okay. There's one on the bottom left, bottom right, and the black thing in the middle, is that yes. a frog? Yeah. Yeah. So, keep going. What about the seahorse? I see one. Yeah. So, but, but it, as an evolutionary tool, it blends right in with the coral, so as not to be eaten. The next one, and this, this is not the picture I initially started with of the snow leopard that you see, but it blends right in with the rock. There was one picture of the snow leopard that I looked at for 20 minutes <laughs> before I found the snow leopard. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I'm pretty, have pretty good like, ability to see one object from another. And then, again, it's, it's advantageous and protective. So for the snow leopard, it makes the snow leopard hunt a little easier. Because mm -hmm. if it blends into the background, it can find its prey and the prey won't see it. The hedgehog, it's, it's protective. Its little spines protect it from the cacti. Right? So then there's also a, the example of uh, there's a male hawk who grows female plumage so as not to get attacked so often. There, there's a Brazilian wildcat that mimics a um, baby monkey cry to lure the mama monkey and then breakfast. And your, your point is that this kind of deception yeah. is. So, deception, this camouflage or deceptive ways of being is an evolutionary tool where we we can we use it to protect us and we use it to our advantage so when we're using wrong speech when we're telling white lies it's usually to protect us our ego or to our advantage not to make us look so bad right but it is effective at times and it's tempting to use it but the point about it is that these little things almost always catch up to you. They always catch up to you. Lies almost always bubble up to the surface. You know, um, if, so, so I think we have to realize as human beings with consciousness, so supposedly, that when we are using wrong speech, that it will catch up to us. That our, our, our lies will be caught out, called out. We will be un unveiled, if you will. You know, the, the place where I had um, boot camp and learning about this uh -huh. was in my clinical training in a hospital setting because frequently people were given diagnoses of fatal illnesses by doctors that um, you had to be very careful in how you stated to either a patient or to the patient's family what this diagnosis meant. Right. And there is what you and I have talked about before. There is in a situation like that, there's telling the truth, mm -hmm. there's telling the whole truth, mm -hmm. and there's telling nothing but the truth. That's so useful to me. It, it's useful also because in, it determines sometimes what I'm going to say to my kids, right? Like I, Josh and I definitely believe in telling our kids the truth, but they don't always need to know every little detail of every little thing. But we, we do answer with the truth, right? I, I also think 
uh, about the fact that in family dynamics, um, let's suppose that you have a couple who've been married and one of them gets involved with somebody else. So you have John and Mary and um, what is a mutual name for a, a boy or a girl? Um, one of them gets involved Jean. with Godzilla. Okay. Uh, there's a story that John tells Mary about that. There's a story that Mary tells John about that. There's a story that Godzilla tells about it. There's a story that they tell other people about it. I mean, it just multiplies. The, right. And they're all true in their way. Yeah, yeah. And so, but again, right speech allows us to pause and to say, what is the most true? You know, and can we speak from that space? And as you say, you know, when we are told don't use slander, don't say anything good or bad about anyone unless they're in your presence. It makes us use a lot less words. I was given that task by <clears throat> my teacher George years ago and I challenge anybody to try it. Yeah. Don't say anything about anybody unless they're in your presence, Right. good or bad. Yeah. So I love this sort of humorous story that um, Tara Brock uses in one of her Dharma talks about right speech. So there's a young man, let's just say his name is John, invites his mother to have dinner at his apartment with he and his roommate. Over dinner, John's mom can't help but notice how gorgeous the roommate Robert is and how Robert laughs at all the right moments of John's jokes, etc. She's wondered for a while if there's more to this relationship that meets the eye. And while washing dishes, she kind of catches John's eye in a questioning glance. And John catches on to what she's saying and says, No, Mom, I know what you're thinking. Robert and I are just friends. Okay. A week or so later, Robert says to John, You know, ever since your mom came for dinner, I can't find that antique soup ladle that we use so often. Huh, says John. I doubt she did anything with it, but I'll email her just in case. So John emails his mom, Dear Mom, I'm not saying you did or did not do anything, but ever since you came for dinner, we haven't been able to find the soup ladle. Do you know anything about this? His mother replies shortly thereafter, Dear son, I am not saying you do or do not sleep with Robert, but the fact remains that if he were sleeping in his own bed, he would have found the soup ladle by now. That's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> First time I heard it, it was with a Catholic priest and his housekeeper. Yeah, <laughs> even more scandalous. Yeah. So, um, so we use speech all the time to position ourselves, to get the attention we want, to exaggerate the fish we caught, to blend in with the background as the snow leopard is doing. We also withhold or say things indirectly so as not to create conflict. This is, this is an example of what the Buddha would say wrong speech to not be direct, to be indirect, circuitous, and, or cir circumvent the point. Um, I imagine that kind of in our deathbed moment, if we had, most of us w won't wish for more riches or a prettier wife. I think most of us would wish for more time with our loved ones, or that we had acted more from our authentic selves. I wish I had been truer to this aspect of myself. I wish I had spoken up more against injustice. I wish I had done more for the poor. Mm -hmm. You know, mo I, I haven't died yet, not in this lifetime, <laughs> but I just can't imagine that we, at the moment of facing our mortality, that we're not, that we're not wishing for something deeper than more stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of us walk through life kind of like an astronaut. We wear this protective space suit so as not to be hurt or to avoid authentic engagement with others. And we keep kind of putting stuff in the space suit. We put self-protection in the space suit. We put defensiveness in the space suit. We put intelligence in the space suit. We put anxiety in it. So we, our space suit becomes so full with all of the behaviors and ways of being in the world that we think are protecting us. But what happens when the spacesuit gets too full is that somewhere in there, the authentic self is lost. And, and truthfully, the spacesuit is really only useful in space. It's, it's not going to protect us here on Earth. And when we, don't, when we are encompassed by the spacesuit, when we don't speak the truth, we're also hiding our true nature. Rumi wrote, whatever came from being is caught up in being drunkenly forgetting the way back. 
When we forget ourselves, you used the example earlier of a child learning to walk. It's like that. It's like stumbling drunk. The spacesuit begins to form this protective shell from the moment we're born. When our needs aren't met, it helps us create strategies for protection and survival, and it can become a prison. We become identified with our strategies. So as a counterphobic six, for example, on the Enneagram, I can have a tendency to become identified with anxiety. I can worry something down to the bone, <laughs> and, I'm, and I become overly identified with that worry, with that anxiety. And to the, to the degree, I'm hijacked when I'm consumed by anxiety. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm separate from myself. I'm separate from what is. I may be thinking about something in a whole other direction than what is actually happening. It's what we <clears throat> talked about last week about right thought. Yeah. You get captured. We get captured, exactly. So this, this is kind of like the hell the samurai was taught about when the, what he could sorry, recognize when he became overly identified with his anger. Tara Brock refers to this moment as being in a trance. And she says, living in a trance is like being caught in a dream. And while we are in it, we are cut off from our own moment-to-moment -moment experience, disconnected from living in this world. We have left home, our awareness and aliveness, and become unknowingly combined in a distorted fragment of reality. She teaches about you know, coming home to the self, that when we can really connect with that true self and operate out of that space, that, that, that we're at home anywhere in that case. This is true on a societal level too. If we can't be in reality about what is, let's say about the harm being done to our planet that gives rise to harmful viruses, it perpetuates and exacerbates. The cycle keeps going. Thoughts become things. It seems to me that America is obsessed with its identity of greatness and individualism to the degree that we as a culture begin to alienate from each other and also from the natural world. So after you started reading Braiding Sweetgrass, I went back to my copy of Braiding Sweetgrass and it's actually, I had downloaded it on Audible and I started listening to it again. Did she read it? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she, you know, she talks about in the Native American tradition in, of which she is a part, that um, their nature is a living entity, and, and it's a gift economy with nature, right? The gift economy of picking strawberries and then giving those strawberries to someone else as a way of saying thank you to nature, and I'm going to gift these to someone else. And so in other words, in, in her Native American tradition, there is no separation between nature and the self. And the self always refers back to an element of nature. And in that book, which I've not finished reading, but it is beautiful. It is beautiful. It is, yeah. The book is Braiding Sweetgrass. I mm -hmm. uh, highly recommend it. Um, she helps us understand <clears throat> out of the very thing that you just talked about, why the word Indian giver mm -hmm. has been hijacked itself yes. to be a, a negative mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. when in fact it rep represents just what you're saying. Yeah. It's a, a giving mentality. Right, Not that when I give you something in a gift economy, then I might think that you're going to give me something back as a way of saying thanks, right? And so she talks about how um, if the, if the, when in the early trading days between the Indians and the colonizers, that if the Indian did not get something back, they'd be like, well, then I want, I want my gifts back. I want to give to someone who is going to appreciate it. When we, right. were, when we were in Alaska several years ago, <clears throat> we had opportunity to talk to a lot of native people uh -huh. and to visit a lot of native people sites and museums and that sort of thing. And one of the guys that came to talk to us talked about the tradition of the potlatch. Mm. And uh, that's where on a special occasion like a wedding, uh, you would invite the whole community mm -hmm. to come to your place mm. and it would last for days. Mm -hmm. And you would just give, you yeah. give hospitality. Yeah. When the Indians 
Native Americans kept being relocated from right. place to place to place right. and their children separated from them and sent to native schools. That sort of thing got taken out of the yeah. Indian culture. Now they're reappropriating it. Right. And it, 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 you just give. Right. And the expectation is that the whole community operates out of that mentality. That's right. So when you're doing this, you're doing it in your own best interest mm -hmm. because you know that it inspires other people to do right. the same. She talked about in those relocations having to learn a whole new ecosystem, right? So when you're relocated by the government as many Native American tribes were over time, they were promised land, they weren't given land, right? Then, and then they were relocated. They had to learn. So this whole ecosystem in which they operated, their cosmologies changed, their ecosystems changed. So this yeah. lack of truth telling is in our DNA. Yes, right. So you know, yeah. I mean, to say to a native peoples, if you just work with us, we'll give you your own land to tend, and then to withhold it. We did that also once enslaved people became free. We said, well, you'll get your 40 acres and a mule. No one ever got their 40 acres and a mule, right? And so, you know, we can't, when we can't speak the truth about how certain groups, we just used two examples, Native Americans and formerly enslaved peoples, have received unjust treatment, when we turn a blind eye or dismiss the bodily experience of others, we perpetuate harm. So if my husband, who is black, experiences an act of racism or a microaggression. For example, once we were driving to Louisiana and where his family lives and somewhere in East Texas, Josh stopped to use the restroom and get a drink, a lemonade or something. He walks into the convenience store, he holds the door open for someone, nodded, said hello to the cashiers, paid, said thank you and have a great day. Pretty normal, humane thing to do and you know, polite. Someone in the store said to him, you're nicer than the rest of them. In other words, you are an exception to other black people. You're nicer than the rest of them, which is not true. That's a microaggression on so many levels and a pretty racially ignorant comment. It's one of those kind of backwards compliments where the person receiving it thinks that something nice is being said to them, but actually it's insulting to so many other people. That's not right speech. That's wrong speech. And it, rendered Josh silent. You know, what was he to say in that moment? When he got back in the car and told me what happened, I, I did not say, oh, surely she didn't mean it that way. That would also be wrong speech. That would be being complicit with the hurt or indignation that was caused to Josh. I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but had I said, oh, she didn't mean it that way, I would have alienated Josh. I would have minimized the, the hurt, however small or large. But if I were to revisit that moment, I probably registered more shock than Josh did, who might, walking in the skin that he walks in, be more accustomed to things like that. And if I were to think about what to say right now, I might say something like, to the woman who says it, I don't know the, who, the they to whom you are referring. I can only assume you mean other black people. And I have had plenty of friendly, polite, and helpful interactions with many. That's what I would hope I would say. There's no name calling in that. There's no righteous indignation. Is there discomfort? Probably for the other person. But I'm just going to trust that they have what they need to deal with their discomfort and their own reaction. Right speech does not avoid discomfort in favor of what is true. So right speech seeks to speak to those kinds of injustices. Martin Neimoller was a German Lutheran pastor and an outspoken critic of Adolf Hitler. He actually spent the last seven years of Nazi rule in concentration camps. One of the most famous um, quotations of his is, first they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Nymoller, I think, gets at one of the hardest things, which is how many of us get stymied when it comes to speaking out against injustices, especially when it comes to our friends and family who might say something 
um, aggressive or ignorant or um, difficult to hear. It's hard because we want to protect the relationship and preserve peace. So often we might not say anything, which is a way of saying something, right? When we don't say something about injustice, we've let silence speak for us. I, I think that during this time of, uh, you call it the apocalypse of which means an unveiling right. of, of racial injustice, mm -hmm. that some of us are learning that there's a huge difference between being able to say, I'm not racist, and being able to say, I'm an anti-racist. Right. Those are really different things. Very different. Um, to say I'm not racist, um, anyone can say I'm not racist, because we identify racist as being part of systems or groups I want to say part of groups that actively promote white supremacy. But racism, if we think of it as a system in which we have been raised um, that preferences people with white skin, then we all participate in it. But to be anti-racist, so if you say I'm not racist, you're kind of like passive. It's pretty easy to say I'm not a racist. I don't believe those things, right? But to be anti-racist is to actively work against it. Right. Yeah. They're different. Yeah, yeah which that will maybe come into right action and right speech. The two mm. are related. Um, there's this idea in right speech of thundering silence. And we, we tend to struggle over words all the time, what to say or not to say, thinking what we might say can change someone's behavior. I remember you telling me once in a rather difficult time, let silence do the heavy lifting. And when I could lean into that, it not only helped me to pay more attention to the ways I was hoping to control outcomes, in other words, manage somebody else's behavior, but also to pay closer attention to what was happening with me in my own sadness or grief or anxiety. And with that awareness, with the silence, the thundering silence, I could show tenderness to myself. And sometimes, then, right speech is saying nothing at all. Yeah. but. There's, there's also Thich Nhat Hanh gives in his uh, book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teachings, the example of writing letters. You, 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 I'm guessing you've written a letter that you've never sent, or you've written something that you've never, yeah. Sure. Yeah, where you just let them have it in the letter, right? right? <laughs> and then you fold it up or throw it away or burn it. Well, my, my experience in letter writing like that, in mm -hmm. this case, is that I, I end up laughing. Yeah. Because I will, I will write a letter. Uh, I haven't done this in years, but I can remember specific situations in which I sat down to write a letter to convince somebody how wrong they were about <laughs> something and how they ought to change their mind and opinion. And so I would start writing, and by the time I'd gotten on like the fourth draft, uh -huh. the others in the wastebasket by this time, I realized this is just nuts there's nothing i can say right. that will make any difference yeah maybe if i just say it this way maybe if i say it this way just keep your mouth shut and, and sometimes let it go. silence needs to do the heavy lifting right. yeah sometimes though silence is a result of being silenced and um, a feeling misunderstood or backed into a corner you've heard this term gaslighting mm -hmm. yeah which effectively makes a person question their own reality and it's a form of emotional manipulation. And you know where it comes from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, an old, I, you were alive back then. <laughs> I've seen that film. I have not. Yeah, it comes from a, a play that was turned into a movie called Gaslight. And it tells the story of a woman who married young. Her husband was manipulative and controlling. Is this echoing with what you saw? In his attempts to control her, he began to manipulate the environment in ways that made her question her sanity. The lights in the home and the film were gas. And so he would mess with the gas and make it go higher or lower. And that make it, he would, when he lowered it, they would flicker. And then he would deny, when she would say, is something going on with the gas? He would deny that anything was happening when she mentioned it. He drove her crazy. Yeah. So he would tell her that she was crazy and nothing was wrong with them. The emotional trauma, of course, was severe. And in the end, my synopsis says that the, the woman found someone who helped her prove that she was not losing her mind and events were happening not in her imagination. And she eventually left the marriage. But she was gaslit in her marriage. When we gaslight others or when we are gaslit, this is wrong speech. 
when it, again, disconnects you or someone else from their reality. So if someone shares a moment of pain with us and we say, but that's not what actually happened, we're gaslighting them. Right. We're saying, you didn't experience it the way you thought you experienced it. Is it is the politics of our time. Right. So, you know, it's, it's another way of using words to benefit our perspective. But rather than power, it also demonstrates great fear. And uh, just being able to sit with what is. I'll give you an example recently of, um, uh, I, I would say, a gas, something that was a gas-lit written piece. Um, this is 2020. <laughs> My son, when we were finishing school this year, they had all kinds of links on the HISD hub that they could follow the threads. Um, and one of them is called Studies Weekly, and they have like um, Texas history. It's a social studies sort of um, online link. And he was reading from it, and he said out loud to me, and, and we have taught our kids and our family about um, their ancestry sort of in both lineages. My, my earliest paternal ancestor was here in 1609. That was the European sort of uh, uh, white European settlers or colonizers. And um, Josh's ancestry, we don't know when his earliest ancestors came here because it's very hard to track enslaved people's ancestry. And his, but his first ancestors were enslaved. So we've taught them both aspects of that. And we have, of course, taught them that slavery was not good, that it was a, a wrong system, and that it did a lot of harm. 2020, my son reads this line out loud to me. Mommy, this article says that some slave owners were nice, that they taught their slaves to read. Do you see the gaslighting there? Slavery can be nice, right? So my son internalizes what you've told me is wrong. It's not, it's not a always a bad system. And I said, baby, let's talk about that statement, right? Let's, you are correct. Some slaves learned how to read. Slavery was not nice. And if you ever hear a teacher or an educator or read that in a class, I give you full permission to raise your hand and say, but slavery was not nice. There was nothing nice about it. So that's gaslighting. It gives, it gives him the, the, the understanding that what he understands is wrong. And, and so right speech is not just about telling the truth right. or not lying. It's about recognizing the power yes. of words. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I, remember, I remember where we were sitting in Atlanta at a psychology conference when John Gottman revealed his research. This was years ago about talking in family systems. And Gottman said that their research at the time showed that in a good relationship, there was a six to one ratio of positive to negative exchanges. Mm. Now he now calls those bids, bids for attention, you know, positive bids, negative bids, you mm -hmm. know, that sort of thing. Like you were saying a minute ago, not saying something can communicate a lot. If I go home after this and say to Sherry, um, how are you doing? And she says nothing. That's a response. That's right. That's right. Um, but I thought while you were talking that the words that put fear into the hearts of most men is to hear their wife say, honey, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> the guys go, oh, what have I done now? You know, that. I, as, a, as, as a six on the Enneagram, I just want to hear everything's fine, but we need to talk. I need to hear the. Or we have a problem and we need to talk. I need a little snippet of what to expect. So after hearing that, Sherry and I went to lunch and we were talking about the events of the day because we'd attended different sessions up until that plenary session. And I said, wow, uh, it's really important, those six positive things uh -huh. that we say to our partner. Thanks for bringing in the paper. Thanks for making the coffee. You, you look nice in that. Uh -huh. And she said, I didn't hear that. What I heard was how powerful is that one negative yeah. thing yeah. and precision of language. I, I don't know where this came to me from this week. Maybe it was out of reading Braiding Sweetgrass, but I had this realization that um, 
there is a world of difference between calling somebody a slave and calling somebody an enslaved person. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right because call, calling that, someone a slave says that's all they were. Right. But an ensla- a person who was enslaved is a person who was enslaved. Right. And we did this in the mental health category yeah. years ago. Right. You know, quit calling schizof- people with schizophrenia schizophrenics and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a hard habit to to Very. control. Yeah. yeah. Um, words have tremendous power, and I, I, I'm sure everybody can remember hearing a word of appreciation or affection that meant so much to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one little word. Thank you. It's terribly important in in relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need to to pay attention to what what we say, and and to recognize the power of words. Um, you know, people are not immigrants. They are people who have immigrated. Mm-hmm. Um, children are not um, illegitimate. Mm-hmm. They are. Children who were born in unusual circumstances. I mean, you, yeah. it, it just goes on and on how right. we can demean people without right. meaning to yeah. do that at, yeah. at all. There is a, a story, you told a story of the samurai. There's a, a story of a Sufi master whose uh, son fell ill and he sent for a healer from far away. In these stories, <clears throat> healers always come from far away. Mm. The, <laughs> the magi are from far away. Right. The prophets are from far away. Mm-hmm. What that means is a, it's a metaphor for the wisdom that we seek is probably foreign to us. And we have to be willing to allow that to come in. And we all have difficulty with that from time to time. So the, the master called this healer to come and heal his son. And the healer came and arrangements were made. And the healer walks over to the master's son and looks at him and says a few words. And then he straightens up and says, now your son will be well. And there was somebody in the crowd who said, ha, you're crazy. A few words are not going to heal somebody. You're a charlatan. The healer walked over to the guy and said, no, it's you who is a charlatan. You're ignorant. You're stupid. You don't know anything. You don't even have good. And he just went on. And the guy who had spoken up started getting red and he started shaking and he drew his fist back to hit the healer. And the healer said, if a few words could upset you like that, Mm -hmm. a few words could heal that boy. That's right. The power of speech. We call this... um, talk today I can get to it (laughs) dishonesty is the worst policy and I hope you see that we mean more than just um, not speaking the truth you can say what's true and still be really harmful really harmful yeah but it it again goes back to being in right mind um, leading with bodhicitta the mind of love and pausing Mm-hmm. to recognize the habit energy before speaking. I remember that uh, George told me uh, several things that still stand out as if he were still alive and right here. Um, he said, my job as your spiritual teacher is to knock you off a path. <laughs> your job is to get back on. Mm-hmm. And in the getting back on, you will begin to experience the freedom and love you want. That's one thing. Second thing he said, I'll teach you a principle that will that can take you home. And by by take one home, what he meant was move you into the territory of freedom and love. Into and the true self. Into true yeah. self. Yeah. Uh, and and that is the principle of equality. Yeah. Don't judge. Don't put anybody up. Don't put anybody down. But everybody is on the same level. Hmm. It's a really hard thing to do. It's easy to talk about. But you can no, you can notice it particularly when you're behind the wheel of your car, mm-hmm. when you're watching your, somebody of the opposite political persuasion, you can see this come out immediately. Right. And not to disrespect. But to to treat everyone as if we are on the same plane is still also 
to speak directly when something is harmful. When, when someone does harm with their speech, to speak directly to it is an aspect of right speech. And, and yeah. I agree. And the third thing he said was about what we're talking about right now. Right. The, the, tell the truth. Yeah. And give up gossiping. Don't say anything about anybody if they're not in, in your presence. Now, I know that everybody thinks that they are an above average driver. <laughs> I've had a lot of speeding tickets in my day. You, uh, you don't think that? William says no. He shakes his William's head. William's no, not he a good driver. Believe that. I've had 16 speeding tickets. Have you really? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, don't follow my example, that's kids. A, that's an honor. <laughs> yeah. But it's clear from that yeah. and from accident records that not everybody's at above average yeah. driver. Yeah. I imagine that if you ask somebody, are you an above average speaker, mm. that people would say, yeah. Do you know how to talk? I have been in the counseling direction business for 50 years now, and I can tell you that's not true. People don't know how to talk. Mm -hmm. Talking is a skill. And uh, when Sherry and I were doing our relationship seminars, the book that I recommend about learning how to talk is this by Susan Scott called Fierce Conversations. It is uh, not a self-help book. It's a book that you will find in the management section of the bookstore or find it on Amazon just by the title. And it is full of practical things to do to increase the skill of being able to talk. For example, in conflictual situations, don't send an email. Don't send a text. <laughs> That's not helpful. Yeah. Uh, if possible, talk on the phone. And now that we're in the closed down, lockdown, uh, do it on FaceTime. Right. Where you can see somebody's face. And so see is now the time to bring this up with you, Bill? Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it on. I, I don't have anything. <laughs> but I, I really recommend that you get and, and uh, read this book. Um, there is a, a story. Um, I love stories. There's a story that comes from Judaism yeah. um, about this man who goes to see the rabbi because he's distraught about the consequences of his gossip and what his gossip has done. So the rabbi, he says, is there anything you can do to help me remedy the damage mm. that I have caused? And the rabbi says, yes, I want you to go to the next village and go to the farmer's stall, mm -hmm. buy a chicken, and bring it back. On the way from there to here, pluck the chicken and drop the feathers where they fall and bring me the chicken. So the guy brings this plucked chicken into the rabbi's presence and the rabbi says, now go back and pick up all the feathers. Mm. Mm. And the man says, I can't do that. They've gone. They're blown to the wind. And the rabbi said, that's where your gossip is. Yeah. So the man made a vow then not to gossip. Yeah. Rosh Hashanah every year is, the, is a time of amelioration, a time of repentance, a time of forgiveness. Um, that is, you know, the Jewish New Year, going back and collecting the feathers, if you will, and saying, I might have hurt you with this and I'm sorry. So one of the things that we have said today is that silence may be golden. Mm -hmm. It can be. And we've also said that sometimes silence can be yellow, meaning, and you had not heard this. Well, yeah, I, I didn't relate it at first. I was like, yellow, but I get it now. You're <laughs> dishonest. Yeah, or, or cowardly. Or cowardly. We, the when term yellow-bellied, right? Which when is when not a, speaking the truth yeah. in, in that situation. Yeah. I think we can make this um, whole thing of right speech, our whole spiritual practice, yeah. if we wanted to do that. Yeah, because so. this is where the thought becomes the thing, right? And speech is where it, it is put out into the world. If we can work with our thoughts, then we can work with our speech. And that will guide us 
in a way forward toward love in a way that's different than many, many things. Yeah. Healthy spirituality is about doing what is required to move more and more into the territory of freedom and love and to do that with bringing everybody in at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll see the reciprocal action of these eightfold path steps. Um, you can't have peace and be a liar at the same time. Mm -mm. You can't have peace and use speech in ways that are harmful. It always bubbles up. Um, I was going to think that another title we could have given this class today is there's something to be said about not saying anything. Hmm. Yeah. Good paradox. Good one, yeah. Thank you, Holly. It's fun to teach yeah, with you. thanks, Bill. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week.